and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to tell you a bit about the podcast and a bit about how you might be able to help us out here at the podcast. First of all, if this is your first time here, welcome. If you've been here before, welcome back. Really appreciate you all being here and really appreciate you sharing these conversations about intentional performers with your friends, with your family, on social media. It means a lot to us when you share these conversations. Why did I set up this podcast? Because I love listening to people's stories, listening to their journeys, and I really try to find out about their mindset and who they are and how they become themselves. So hopefully you'll enjoy listening along the way, and I appreciate everyone who continues to support this thing. So thank you so much. Now to today's guest. Ken Tyler is somebody who I connected with on Twitter. We followed each other, and I was really curious about what he was up to. So today he works at the St. James, and we're going to talk about the St. James. He's the director of advancement there, and he came on as the athletic director to run that facility. And the St. James is not your average sports facility. And I'm going to let Ken explain exactly what they're doing over there, but it is unlike anything I've ever seen before and unlike anything that I think you'll have ever heard about before. Before working at the St. James, he was the director of athletics at a university called Mary Washington University in Virginia. And Ken has really spent his career working in sports. He's worked as a basketball coach. He's worked as an athletic director. And at his core, he really is a servant leader. He's always trying to put others in a position to be successful. He is a coach. He is an athletic director. And he is somebody who really cares deeply about his mindset and the mindset of the people that he serves. So, Without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Ken Tyler. Ken, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We met a few weeks ago, maybe maybe a month or so ago, mm-hmm. and the reason we met was you are out at the St. James, which is this incredible sports facility, yeah. unlike any sports facility I've ever seen before. And I remember when they were building this thing, on social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, I would always get these advertisements 
and these pictures and these videos for this over-the-top sports facility. And I remember looking at it and just saying, what are they building out there? This is exactly. unlike anything I've ever seen before. Exactly. And I'm a Marylander, and I know Northern Virginia enough, but not well enough. So I'm like, I got to find out what the deal is with this. And you guys open, and we connected on on social media, on Twitter. And I said, hey, I'd love to come out and introduce myself and chat with you. And so you gave me a tour of this facility. And I, I think words won't really do justice, but give us an idea of what the facility is. Give us the quick rundown. Um, and then we'll, we'll get into much more about you, but I think it'll set the table for why I was so intrigued yeah. uh, to learn more about what's going on out there. Well, first of all, Brian, thanks very much for having me on the podcast. I'm really appreciative of the opportunity and look forward to our conversation. I'm glad the St. James brought us together. It's actually done that with a lot of people. Uh, I've, I've given a ton of tours and just about everybody that comes in that place feels the same way, the kind of a jaw-dropping type of place. Uh, you and I have both been around high-level sports facilities our whole lives, but the St. James is really kind of the ultimate sports playground, and that was the idea behind it. It's almost half a million square feet of uh, incredible top-of-the-line facilities designed to meet the need of athlete, the needs of athletes of all ages and abilities. And I literally, I mean that literally. You know, we want to be able to provide facilities and programming for the young kids just learning how to play all the way up to the elite level professional or Olympic uh, level athletes. And we've done a great job of that, you know, and I think the other incredible aspect of the St. James is that all the staff is full-time, high, uh, highly trained, motivated coaches, trainers, uh, and uh, directors, instructors um, who are, very well schooled, not only in the technical aspects of their sport, but also in delivering high-level customer service. The secret sauce of the St. James is, is that it's much more than a sports complex. We want people to have the sense that they're in a high-end resort when they're at the St. James. And it's kind of why it's called the St. James and not the Springfield Sportsplex. Um, and I can tell you a little bit more about that later if you want. But just to give people a sense of the scope of the place, you're talking about under one roof, a full FIFA-sized turf field with seating for 1,200, a 72-foot high ceiling. Um, underneath the bleachers there, two big locker rooms, two big meeting rooms, an athletic training room, and public restrooms. We're hosting all of T.C. Williams, which is one of the biggest high schools in Northern Virginia, all of their home football games at the St. James this fall because their field is undergoing renovation. That gives you an idea of the kind of things that we can do there. In addition, there's a courthouse with four full basketball courts, nine volleyball courts. There are two, not one, but two nhl size hockey rinks, each with seating for about 450 with 10 locker rooms uh, down below. And we run hockey and ice skating programming. Uh, and there's a 50-meter by 25-yard Olympic-style competition pool, also with seating for about 450 in its own standalone locker rooms. Throw in, then, a golf and squash facility with six golf simulators that are state-of-the-art and eight really uh, spectacular squash courts. 
a hitting house with six bays, tunnels for both baseball and softball, working on pitching, hitting, fielding, you name it, uh, and then a 10,000-square-foot gymnastics center. And just think about all the possible possible combinations and different sports that you can run out of all of those facilities. You're really looking at something that's comparable to a, a pretty big college sports program, a college athletic program. And so that's why I was so excited to come on board before it even opened last year as a director of athletics to hire a staff and to build programming to deliver content to those athletes of all ages and abilities. And we've had them in there. I mean, uh, the core of our of our of our work is probably around youth programming. But we've had the Olympic swimmer Katie Ledecky training in there. The new Redskins quarterback Dwayne Haskins uh, has worked out there repeatedly. We had a dozen NFL guys, uh, Stephon Stephon Diggs, Vernon Davis um, included, working out before training camp started. Um, Several Washington Wizards players, Washington Mystics players, high school, college athletes, and again, everything in between. But uh, layered into all of that, and then I'll wrap it up, is uh, it's also, by the way, got a full-service restaurant. And we had Spike Mendelson on the podcast, so we know that he's So, involved. yeah, a Spike Mendelson uh, restaurant called Vim and Victor, full-service full bar with a liquor license throughout the facility. So you can go watch your kid get a soccer a lesson or take a hockey, uh, do a hockey clinic and you can have a beer while you're doing it, uh, um, which is kind of cool. It has a full service Medi spa called Corded, a retail boutique called Strivers, and then uh, an active entertainment center called Super Awesome and Amazing with a water park, uh, zip lining, Ninja Warrior course, e-sports gaming theater, virtual reality chambers, uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff I don't even know about. And then, oh, by the way, a 50,000-square-foot health club, uh, much more than a fitness center. And so, you know, we have the component of membership. We have over 3,000 members now. We have the component of sports programming, and we have the component of all those auxiliary services, the restaurant, the boutique, and the active entertainment center. So it's an incredible concept that really uh, is the uh, – the dream and the brainchild of two um, entrepreneurs that are William and Mary graduates, which is my alma mater and how I got connected with these guys, Craig Dixon and Kendrick Ashton, uh, really innovative, um, you know, visionary guys. And I've been really, why, li- why did they do this? I like, as you're, as, as Ken's explaining this, this is all, it sounds like fiction it's yeah, not futuristic I, like i visited this and my jaw dropped and when he says state of the art they didn't just like slap all this together it is state of the art uh it, it is like take every one of those facilities nice ice rink basketball courts or football field the nicest one you can imagine and then imagine piecing those together into a giant facility why are they why are they doing this yeah, it's a great question. Uh, they, they saw the need uh, in the marketplace. Uh, they both have three young children, and they and their, and their wives have you know, spent you know, years literally running from lacrosse practice to soccer practice to swim practice to soccer workouts, and you name it, all in different locations. And so a lot of it was uh, to meet the needs of busy families um, and to provide a one-stop shop, if you will, 
for the sports and wellness and active entertainment needs of, of families in the D.C. area. Um, and they also have a vision to grow the company and to build 10 or 15 of these over the next 10 years or so all over the country and want to be seen as a convening space on a national level for um, symposiums and conventions and high-level competitions, tournaments. Um, you know, I've had conversations with the United States Olympic Committee with the U.S. Soccer Federation, and they're intrigued by what's going on with the St. James. D.C. United uh, trains frequently at the St. James. So, um, you know, there's, there's a, as you might imagine, a business model attached to it. Uh, they see it as a, uh, a business with a heck of a lot of potential, and all the projections show uh, a steady upward growth. We're very blessed to have a significant number of private investors behind it. So we are in a position to grow properly. Slowly is not the right word, but at the appropriate pace. And, you know, I, I know that uh, they're, you know, the St. James is built for the long haul. And I mean this in an absolutely complimentary way. But Kendrick and Craig, you know, they, they don't play. They want to take over the world. And I have no doubt that they will. And it's been, uh, it's been a privilege and really exciting and energizing for me, uh, who spent my career in college athletics, and I love that, um, to, you know, get this invigorating opportunity. Um, you know, I'm an experienced leader in, in college athletics. To get this opportunity at this stage of my career has been really invigorating. And I've learned a lot. I've met a lot of incredible people. And certainly, um, you know, I'm, I'm really lucky to have had this opportunity. I would encourage anyone in the D.C. area to do like you did and to um, – scratch that itch and check it out. And, you know, whether you're, uh, you know, have young, young children or high school age kids, or even, you know, you're yourself looking to uh, get in great shape or um, find a league to play in, we, we can provide all of that to St. James. And it's, uh, it's, you know, the location is uh, kind of a double-edged sword. You know, we laugh about it a little bit conveniently located five minutes off of 95 395 and 495 in Springfield Virginia right at the mixing bowl the famous infamous mixing bowl but at the same time that's that's a challenge as well as everybody knows and it's all about timing um, but it, it really is um, not very hard at all to get to and there's plenty of parking thousand parking places uh, spaces and I would encourage folks to check out the website at thesaintjames.com and if you like what you see, and you will, to take the time to go check it out. It's open to the public and open 24-7, so anybody can walk in and, and take a tour uh, at any time, and there's lots of folks there that can answer questions. Awesome. So we usually do all of that sort of stuff at the end, but <laughs> we got we got it off the top, so now we can spend the rest of the time playing and uh, really talking about you and getting to know you. Not as exciting. <laughs> I think it's going to be, a, you, you know, you're, you don't have – a basketball court and ice hockey, unless maybe you do in your backyard or something. I have. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, Not quite but like I, that. Yeah. But I want to find out from you, like where did this journey start and, and how did it get started for you? So we were talking a little bit 
off the air about where you grew up and not too far from where we're recording right now. Uh, so give us an idea of what life was like for you as a kid. Well, I, I appreciate that, that opportunity, Brian. And uh, it, it may not be as exciting as the St. James, but uh, I'm certainly proud of my journey and uh, I've, I've learned a great deal along the way. But I, I grew up in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia. And it, it's funny, um, it's not that far from where we are right now. It's probably only 60 miles or so over the mountains. And a uh, beautiful part of, of the country, but many people in the D.C. area have never heard of it. You know, they act, they act like West Virginia, like that's a whole other country. Uh, it's really not that far away. Uh, but You I'm, know, Marylanders do that with Virginians. And Virginians I know, right? Cross the river? Either. Cross the yeah. river? Are you crazy? We're territorial. Um, but I, and I get it, and, but I'm really proud of my, my West Virginia roots. Uh, go Mountaineers. Um, uh, but, uh, but really, really pleased to grow up there. But, but the Eastern Panhandle, quite honestly, is very different than the rest of the state. Um, you know, not the, not the reliance on, say, the coal industry the rest of the state has had for many, many years. Um, it has become, for better or for worse, a lot of people have discovered it, a little bit of a bedroom community for the D.C. area. There's a lot of people, believe it or not, that commute back and forth. So there's a bit more opportunity in the Eastern Panhandle, even, even when I was growing up there in the in the 70s and, and 80s and um it's it's also a little bit more uh, diverse and um i discovered my love of sports there thanks to you know parents who exposed me to lots of different things i mean as a as a younger guy i you know participated in tennis and swimming um you know and then found basketball and football and and loved all of it and uh you know really started a a lifelong uh, love affair with with sports and the power of sports, and we'll talk maybe a little bit more about that. But um, you know, had an opportunity to follow in the family footsteps and go to high school here in Alex in Alexandria, Virginia, at Episcop- Episcopal High School, which you know I'm a little bit biased, but I think is one of the best high schools in the country. Um, my father had gone to Episcopal, and his father before him. Uh, so I, I had uh, the opportunity to be the third generation, and then both of my children went to Episcopal as well. And so we've had four generations of Tylers at Episcopal High School, and that's something I'm really proud of. But Episcopal was transformative for me. Uh, it exposed me to uh, it's it's a 100% boarding school there in Alexandria, and exposed me to opportunities in the nation's capital, but also to um, people from all over the world really for the first time, you know, a sheltered, quote unquote, sheltered guy from West Virginia in the big city. And so that was really great. And at Episcopal, I got to play basketball for uh, Coach Tony Shaver. And Coach Shaver uh, played for Dean Smith at North Carolina. And he was relatively young at the time. And it was so great to play for him. And he um, he taught me a lot about the game of basketball, but also, uh, you know, the, the old cliche, but it's true, the game of life. And he's been a lifelong friend and mentor. And then ironically, he spent 16 years as the head coach of my college alma mater, William and & Mary, and uh, did a great job there. And so, you know, that connection, I always stay connected with William & Mary anyway, but that connection allowed me to really be plugged in and involved with the basketball program, which was really, really cool for me. What, what was it like for you going to high school here, uh, when I say here in the D.C. area, and, you know, having your family back home? What was that transition like for you? 
I mean, it's hard. You know, I was 15 years old when I went to Episcopal High School and, uh, you know, that, that boarding school reality um, can be striking. And I'm not going to lie and tell you that I was never homesick. I certainly was. Um, but Episcopal is the kind of place that grows on you. And, um, you know, I, I learned very quickly that, you know, if you're feeling a little bit down, you, you know, there's a couple things that you can do, you know, number one, stay busy. So I would, you know, study or go work out or go shoot some, shoot some hoops or, you know, you, you reach out to a friend because chances are, if you're feeling a bit down, they might be too. And, you know, Hey, let's go watch the game. Let's go shoot some hoops together. Uh, that usually got your mind off it pretty quickly. And, um, you know, it, even though it was a different time, there was no, uh, cell phones or anything like that you know we actually communicated I had you know my mom passed a few years ago and I found all these letters that I had written her and she kept which is really touching um, you know we actually wrote handwritten letters back then and so uh, which I, I, I think is a, a little bit of a lost start I think it uh, taking the time to write somebody a handwritten note means a lot uh, nowadays and I try to do that as much as I can, probably should do more of it. Um, what did what did mom and dad do back back in West Virginia for a living? Yeah, my mom uh, was a teacher by trade, uh, and then spent you know ten years or so raising my brother and I. And uh, uh, my dad uh, was a great soccer player at Episcopal and had a chance to play back in the old days. He he went over to Europe after he graduated and got offered a contract to play professional soccer in Austria but then broke his foot and um, the, the contract went away and came back and uh, worked in, uh, he worked for a Purina Foods outlet in Percival, Virginia. Uh, my parents divorced when I was fairly young and my uh, stepfather for 20 years was a guy who owned a, a local um, oil company in Charlestown, West Virginia, did very well, a businessman, a leader in the community. Uh, that I, you know, that I really came to admire and care for very much. So didn't, ha you know, my dad, my dad was a very good athlete, um, but he never really pushed, pushed that into me. And, and quite frankly, um, you know, my parents divorced when I was seven years old and I lived with my mother. My mother was kind of my toughest coach. She wasn't an athlete, um, but she knew and understood inherently, I think, the value of being part of a team and, the discipline and the work ethic and the goal setting that went along with sports. So she's the one who signed me up for tennis and swimming and basketball initially, even when I didn't want to, I remember some push and pull uh, on all of those things. And, you know, of course I'm glad that she did. Um, what, what impact did the divorce have on you? You know, I, I was pretty young, so I'm not sure I completely understood it. I will tell you this, Brian, it was. It seemed like it was harder for me. Both of my parents remarried fairly soon after the divorce, and that seemed to be a little bit harder. You know, well, this is my new dad. This is my new mom, and of course they weren't, and they were terrific. Um, but as a, you know, eight and a half year old and a ten year old or nine year old, you know, respectively, it's kind of hard to process that. Um, you know, I, I, I like to think that um, you know. The divorce gave me an opportunity to have a, a little bit of an expanded family and uh, share the love a little bit more. My father uh, 
was always in my life and, um, you know, was always one of my heroes and um, I never felt like there was, it was anything different. So that was, that was all good. And, and I will give my parents this credit. Um, they stayed great friends and Christmases and Thanksgiving were, I never remember being contentious, you know, often we were all together in some level or another. And so it all worked out. And, uh, you know, since you opened that, that door, um, you know, I'm not so recently divorced myself. I mean, I am fairly recently divorced myself after 23 years of marriage to a terrific woman. And, um, you know, the thing that I, that I focus on more than anything else as I went through this process and, and to this day is my kids. You know, you want to, you want to make sure that, uh, your impact, your, your, the negative impact on them is, uh, is mitigated as much as possible. And I know it's been hard on both of them, even though my kids are now 18 and 21, it's never easy. Um, you know, both of my kids have been through a lot of change here the last few years. And, um, you know, as, as my, I have in my ex-wife and, uh, you know, you, you focus on, on certainly loving them and communicating with them, but also I've come to understand that, uh, you know, family is family no matter how it's defined and there's lots of different definitions of family uh, across the world and and home is where family is and you know it, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a house it's it's where family is so um, I'm curious for you 18 year old version of you uh, let's just say you're a senior at Episcopal and your parents are divorced yeah how are you making sense of that then compared to the adult version of you, perhaps when your kids are 18? Um, what, what has changed as far as your perspective on that situation now that you didn't have maybe when you were a teenager? Well, remember, my parents got divorced when I was much younger than 18. Sure, but I'm just trying to think of like when you started to maybe make sense of it. So uh, perhaps when you were... A teenager you started to because yeah. you said I was really young I don't think I really fully understood it so I'm trying to get to a point where maybe you did did start to make sense of it yeah. and we, how that might be different than your perspective now as an adult going through something similar that's a great question and thank you for um, making me think about that a little bit I, I would say at Episcopal is when I you know maybe processed it um you know, I was, I was forced to be on my own a little bit. You're forced into your own mind a little bit more when you're in a boarding school environment, um, out of your comfort zone a little bit. Away from mom and dad a yeah, little bit. I mean, literally, right? The, the separation forces that. And I, I guess I, I was fortunate that I was living with my mother. You know, that was my official residence. But my father, and, and it was great that he was a graduate of Episcopal, he was a frequent presence in my life. I mean, he was at every football game and at many of my basketball games. And, um, and I, I started to be able to understand that these two people um, are, are separate individuals now, but they both care very much for me. And, you know, that is a similar theme to what we've tried to shit tell our kids uh, over the past couple of years, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, my 21-year-old my is my son, uh, Jordan, who's a senior at William & Mary. And then my 18-year-old is my daughter, Logan, um, 
who is a freshman soccer player at Roanoke College and who just graduated from Episcopal. And they're both terrific, and I'm really proud of them. But they, I think, have both handled our divorce a little bit differently. And, and you know, I think the dynamic between a, a boy and a girl, you know, a young man and a young woman, um, I've, I've seen that a bit. And, um, you know, but my daughter, I live in Alexandria now. My daughter lives with me. And uh, my son actually stayed down in, in Williamsburg this summer. And so he's kind of thinks he's living on his own, even though I'm paying all his bills. <laughs> Um, you know, Brian, I, I, I find myself saying I love you a lot more. I find myself communicating a lot more. We're recording this podcast uh, on September 11th, and um, that's a very meaningful day, obviously, for our country. But I remember 18 years ago, I was the head basketball coach at Shepherd University uh, in my hometown area and had just begun my first year there, and I was teaching a class in sport management and, you know, this, we didn't have social media, you know, reports were trickling in over the TV and the administrative assistance office. And when I finally made sense of it, when we all finally made sense of it, my first instinct was, you know, I got to get home. I've got to get with my kids and my, and my wife. And, uh, I just reminded, I sent my, my, both my kids a text today and said 18 years ago, um, you know, I had a pit in my stomach as I made a drive home um because i we didn't know what was going to happen and you know i wanted to be with you guys and just you know today think about all the lives that were lost think about the heroes who charged in rather than ran away and i love you guys very much and they both replied and said i love you too dad i'm sure they were a little bit embarrassed or whatever um but those are the kind of things that honestly 15 years ago, I probably wouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't do enough of. Um, and Why? What do you think? What do you think's changed inside yeah, you? I mean, I, I, you know, when when your marriage comes to an end after 23 years, it causes you to take it take some stock. And I've done a great deal of reflection over the past couple of years, personally and professionally. And I've had some change that I've had to navigate. Um, and I've I've recognized that that change is an opportunity to grow. It, it's okay. Um, I'm proud of my marriage to to my ex-wife, primarily because of the kids. But I was also probably, honestly, a little bit too focused on my career. And it's not an uncommon theme for those of us that work in the athletics world. It really can be a 24-7, 365 type of commitment, whether you're a coach or an athletic director. And I've done both. And um, you take some things for granted. Maybe you don't listen to understand so much you listen to respond to get on to your next thing i'd like to think that i was a uh that i'm a good father and that i was a uh, involved parent i saw lots and lots of my kids games and and other activities um but maybe i didn't always keep my eye on the prize as much as i should have and 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 recognize you know, now what's most important, um, you know, are those relationships with your family and making sure that your kids feel good about themselves first and foremost, and and then making sure they understand that you're there for them, even when you're physically not. Um, you know, this has been, my, my daughter has been at school now for about a month. She went back a little bit early for soccer, and, you know, it's been the longest time that, you know, I've gone, even though they both went to Episcopal, uh, 
because of the way the schedule would work. I would see them, it seemed like, even you know, once or twice a week most of the time. It's amazing to hear the perspective on 9-11. And I think, like I've wanted to do a documentary on how 9-11 changed people's lives, not the people that were in the towers or not the people that were in the planes or the Pentagon. People that just had a response to that, you know, the the person that goes and serves in the military because 9-11 happened, yeah. the person that says, you know what, I want to move from New York City to Montana and go to a ranch. I've heard so many stories that that moment was just transformative for them and shifted how they navigated the world or even people who were related to people that were in those buildings or who, like I went to a funeral for somebody who was in one of the airplanes. And so there are there's so many tentacles of that day and how it changed the world. And it just changed how people navigate the world. And I've had so many in-depth conversations with people that said that day changed how I navigate the world. Uh, and it, it fundamentally changed them. And for me, as I'm hearing this, you know, I'm, a, I'm about twice your daughter's age. So I hear, you know, she was probably, she was an infant, an infant. Mm -hmm. And I was a senior in high school. And so for me, growing up right outside Washington, D.C., I mean, it, for everybody, they have the moment because we remember bad things more than we remember good things, and bad things stay with us, and they're vivid. But when you were talking about you know, caring about your kids and, and reaching out to them and saying you love them, there is a very distinct memory of being at school that day. Once again, people don't have access to uh, information the same way that we used to. There were some TVs, and I remember we were watching some TVs, but I remember being in the cafeteria and people leaving school because they didn't know where mom or dad was. Yeah. And they wanted everybody to stay in school. They didn't want people, to, parents to come and panic and get their kids. But a lot of kids are like, my dad works at the Pentagon or my dad works downtown. And at the time in D.C., there were rumors that, you know, the building next to the White House had gotten hit. And certainly from all reports, there was another plane that was coming yeah. to D.C., um, so people just didn't know. And I even get emotional talking about it. Uh, and I remember as you were talking about your daughter feeling that emotion, because when we drove home that day from school, I remember I had a very close knit neighborhood and I, like four of my best friends lived in our neighborhood, about 52 houses in the neighborhood. And we would drive home together and the parents were all outside and I get chills. Like they're all outside yep. and we parked the car and they just hugged us. Yep. And I think everyone's scared. Uh, it's really, really scared. It's it's a horrible analogy that we have that I can draw, but it's almost like um, some of these active shooter situations that we've had at schools, um, except it, it seemed to impact the entire country. Yes. Um, the other aspect, though, um, that is still very, very tough, but, but inspiring, I remember vividly that either that evening or the next day, my team had a workout and I came in before they started and talked to the team and, and just talking to them uh, about the impact and uh, reminding them to call their parents, et cetera, et cetera. But to think about the first responders and, you know, we talk about being, you know, in sports, about being tough, about being strong, about showing courage or, you know, whatever adage you want to throw in there, you know, these men and women, when literally thousands of people were flowing, flowing out of those burning buildings, they charged in. When, they, when others were going down the stairs, they went up. And it is really hard for me to wrap my head around the, the, the sense of duty and 
service and courage. courage and honor that was associated with each of those individual decisions. And now we hear all of these reports about hundreds and hundreds of first responders who have passed because of illnesses uh, they got uh, from responding on, on 9-11. And it's heartbreaking, but it's also so inspiring. And, you know, as I've progressed through my career um, and as a father and a friend, husband, um, you want to think of yourself as a servant leader. And I think, um, you know, what a great model uh, that all of those first responders show and, of course, show every single day um, by, by doing what they did. I mean, it's pretty pretty overwhelming two more thoughts on 9-11 from my perspective the other thing that happened after that was people started to be proud to be american again and i remember those same group of people who i drove back to my neighborhood with we did like a little photo shoot because we were graduating our senior year of high school so you know eight months later and we had an american flag in it and we wouldn't have had that american flag a year before that and there was a sense of unity that was going on in this country that we're all in this together. We also had an enemy now. Um, but there's the other story, which is I've had somebody on my, podca- my podcast named Race Bouillon. And Race is a Muslim man, was living in Texas at the time, working at a gas station. And a white supremacist walked up to him, asked him if he was Muslim before he could even answer it. He shot him in the face. And he survived. Oh. Um, and for those that haven't listened to that podcast, it's one of my, yeah, it's one of the best ones I've, we've done one. together. Uh, race ended up surviving and actually like went to try to save the man's life when he was in death row, um, and developed oh. a relationship with him. It's an incredible story oh that we could spend the rest of our time talking yeah, yeah. about race. He's, he's one of the most incredible men I've ever met, but I always think about that. Like, all right, so we had the American flag in our picture, but race had gotten shot as a, that another thing that happened as a result of 9-11. There are just yeah. ripples that happened as a result of 9-11 because the person that shot him thought that race was the one that, you know, took those towers down and he was the enemy. And so there's always these different perspectives that we have from a massive event. And I think it's true what you brought up about the school shootings because it elicits emotion um, and it makes us pause and it makes us reflect and it makes us feel. And I thought about this this morning when I woke up, I said, should this be a holiday? Should 9-11 be a holiday? And then I said, no, because that would be honoring them. Um, and you talked about, you know, we kept playing football. We kept playing baseball. We, we kept going. They would win if we stopped. Yeah. But I do think there should be a moment of silence that the whole country does to honor the people that rushed in, to honor the people that fell, to honor the people that have gone on and served our country uh, as a result of that, to honor the people like race who had to deal with that and the Muslim community who had to deal with hatred. Let's just honor the best of America during a day like today. And let's take a, a moment to pause, reflect and feel. And that would be so amazingly powerful. What if we all just stopped what we were doing at the, you know, you could do it at the time when both, you know, you do twice, once when, or three times, once when, four times, gosh, it's crazy, right? right? But you could, you could just have these pauses. And what if the world, what if we paused and just said, oh, we're, we're better. And especially with where we are as a country right now, I think regardless to where you are politically, far right far left middle middle left middle right whatever i think we can all agree like we got to do this better like we are not living up to what we should be as a country we we have such a strong divide and we have we have to find a way to unite and 
unfortunately, you see what happens when we face adversity. It does bring people together, and we shouldn't wait for something like that happen to bring us all together again. Um, so I, I like to think about how can we proactively create that unity? Like how amazing would it be for us to just acknowledge we might disagree politically and we might have our differences, but we are all American. Like if you're living here, you're an American and there's nobody here that should not acknowledge that, that just the pictures and the videos of that day should remind us that that is evil. Like, let's get real clear. Like that, that is evil of evil and and we are all way better than that so um you know i'm glad we brought this up because it is it's relevant well said sign me up i mean you know how do we how do we make that uh moment of silence or moment of reflection a reality that's that sounds great i know they i know in you know new york and maybe at the pentagon they do something along those lines but a national moment a national reflection would be would be so awesome and i just want to piggyback this kind of the last part of 9-11, but to me, and we did talk about this a bit before we went on the air, but, but it also showed the power of sport to lift people up and bring them together. I mean, everybody can remember President Bush throwing out the first pitch at the Yankees game and how emotional that was. And, and whether you're a Yankees fan or not, um, you know, I think everybody was kind of rooting that, that night. And uh, the NFL did decide to play their games that weekend. And um, the, the symbols of patriotism that, that were on display, uh, I still remember and still, you know, get, get chills thinking about and on and on and on. And, um, sport, sport has always had that power to elicit, uh, those kind of deep responses from people in a way that few other things can. And, you know, I'm, my mother uh, made sure that, uh, I wasn't just, I hope a dumb jock, you know, I, I uh, maybe the only Division One basketball player to major in history and minor in English and theater. Um, and that all because of my mother, and I'm glad that she did. Um, and I admire those heirs. I admire art, uh, things like that as well. But somehow the the power of sport, the numbers of you know people that you can be impact through sport, um, it certainly has made a difference in my life. Um, you know, one one of the things I didn't tell you, Brian, about Growing up in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia, I did mention that it's much more diverse than the rest of the state. I, um, I after my freshman year at William and Mary, I ended up going to. We, I don't know. You might have. You might be asking me, you know, to pick up the story. But from Episcopal, I went to William and Mary um, to, to get a great education and to play uh, Division One basketball. And I was quickly I, I quickly recognized that I, I was a pretty good high school basketball player I scored a lot of points and you know made some all area teams and things like that a lot of fun but I was a largely an inside player at six foot four and when I got to William and Mary I realized there wasn't a whole lot of you know and I've had, had these conversations a bit during the recruiting process but they didn't need a six four power forward or center uh, you know, I had to learn a whole new way to play, facing the basket, you know, learn how to handle the ball, pass, shoot from the outside. And I wasn't really good at any of that. And so after my freshman year where I didn't really didn't play at all, um, I spent the entire summer at a place called Ranson Park in Ranson, West Virginia. And Ranson Park was almost 100% populated by African-Americans. And 
I knew many of the, of the guys just from basketball and some of them were, had been my teammates in junior high school and things like that. But uh, I had never immersed myself, uh, you know, fully in, in what happened at Ransom Park. And I would go every late afternoon by myself before a whole lot of people got there and I'd work on ball handling drills and stuff. I remember it being so hot and on the blacktop. Imagine that nobody does that anymore with basketball either. Um, Not when they can go to a place like the St. James. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Sorry. I don't want to, I don't want to uh, push business away, but you know, no trainer, just me, you know, working on drills that, uh, you know, that I thought were going to help me. And then, and then the, you know, the sun would start to go down, the lights came on and, uh, and everybody would show up. And it was, it was not just a basketball gathering. It was a celebration of the African-American community. And in the beginning, they looked at me a little funny, but eventually, and it didn't take long at all, partly because I hope I could play a little bit, but I also hope mainly they sensed that I was a good person and I respected them and I was grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to be in that environment. Uh, I felt very, very comfortable and accepted and it, it, uh, it, it was a transformative experience for me and that I've carried with me through my entire life and my career. And as a coach, um, uh, you know, I have spent countless days and nights in, you know, homes of African-American young men and speaking with their families. And I hope um, I've done it with empathy and understanding and listening and um, respect. Um, and where did that yeah. come from for you? Because I would imagine there are other people in your hometown who might have been afraid to go to that blacktop or that just wouldn't be their thing. Um, yeah. wh where did you, where did that come from for you? Well, this was, uh, again, 19, you know, 84, 85, and West Virginia, the Eastern Panhandle of West Virginia is a little bit different than the rest of the state, but it was still West Virginia. And there were, you know, literally some dividing lines between the quote unquote white part of town, the black part of town. And, and, and certainly um, I had some friends who were basketball guys, white friends, but no one was playing college basketball. It was honestly initially motivated simply for me looking for the best run in town. Um, you know, where can I get the best game? And, and, you know, because I knew I was never going to see the light of day at William and Mary unless I worked on my skills. And that was how you did it back then. Um, and so that pushed me on. And, you know, there had been allegedly, I don't remember if any of it is accurate or not, but reports of, you know, police showing up and things like that. And, but I, I didn't seem, I wasn't afraid of that. You know, there's a 7-Eleven right around the corner and I would go after my afternoon work. I remember this clear as day. I'd get a big gulp, Mountain Dew. Imagine how bad is that for you? The national or the state drink of West Virginia, which is a horrible stereotype, but I can make that joke because I'm from West <laughs> Virginia. But I would drink a Mountain Dew big gulp and I live to tell about it. Um, and then go back and, you know, some, some of the guys would show up with a six pack of beer and, 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 and maybe I'm not going to lie to you, maybe have a, there was a little smoke drifting in the air, but these dudes could ball, they could play. And some of them had been my teammates at Charlestown junior high. And they, these guys, I, I look back, I swear, Brian, I think they like were fully grown men, you know, at age 15, but they were also, you know, the, the, there were men there, you know, so I was playing with 30 year olds and, 
40-year-olds and 25-year-olds and getting beat up a little bit and, uh, you know, had to, had to really learn how to adjust and adapt. And I didn't tell a whole lot of people I was doing it. Uh, I didn't brag about it. Um, I, I, you know, I was work during the day and then, and then just go do it. And um, it, it was, a, it was a, a good positive step for me in lots of different ways, including having the discipline to stick with something that was a little bit awkward and hard. It's interesting. You're, what it sounds like, the reason you went is because it was the best opportunity for you to get better at basketball. And there's a great organization that we were talking about off the off the air called Peace Players, which I've mentioned before on the podcast. And we had Brendan Tui, the executive director and co-founder of Peace Players on the podcast. And Brendan and what Peace Players has done is they go into areas of conflict and they bring a basketball and they try to get the best coaches to bring out the best basketball and they figure that if they can create the best basketball opportunities, people will come and they'll come for the basketball and then they'll stay for the piece, right? Like they come to play ball because ball won't discriminate. Like people start seeing each other as people when they're on a basketball court. If you can play with someone, then you can see them. And once you start playing together, then you start to understand each other and you don't even need to talk. You just play ball. You get it. And you can understand someone and what their moves are and how they work and how they operate and how they navigate. So they go into places like Ireland and work with Catholics and Protestants, Israel with Palestinians and Israelis. Uh, They're in Cyprus. They're in South Africa. And they're actually in the U.S. in places like Baltimore, Chicago, L.A., Brooklyn, all these places, Detroit. And they go to those areas and they find out what is the biggest conflict and then they bring their basketball and they bring their programming and they bring their coaches and they have them play and by playing they start to see each other and so it's amazing because what you actually did was you said where's the best basketball that's where I'm going what's my motivation what's my drive I want to play next year at William & Mary if I want to play I better get on the blacktop with the best basketball players in my area I'm going. Yeah. And so the motivation drove it and that j- drove the change. And I think too often we try to make things happen sort of less organically and we just try to do this or do that. But if you really put in programs, and this is why I think competitiveness is so important, I think capitalism does this. Like when you have that competitive spirit, things will work its way out. Sure, you need to put parameters and you need to be conscious and you need to make sure that there are systems and rules in place. Um, But Peace Players is a great example. They come, they bring it, and then it attracts the people that really want to play basketball if they can create the best programming. In Israel, for example, they do a lot of women's work. Uh, So most of their basketball players are women. And in those communities, they know, if I want to play great basketball, I got to play for the Peace Players team. Uh, So it speaks to you. I want to go back. you You can add on to that and then give us a sense of what the rest of your college experience was like as, yeah. well, as well at William and Mary. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, what, what a great story and, and what a great example of the power, again, of sports to lift people up and bring them together. It's really, really true. Um, I love my experience at William and Mary. Unfortunately, as much as I would like to tell you I had a happy inning and I ended up being a star player and you know, all conference and we uh, won the national championship, everybody knows that's not true. I love William and Mary, by the way. Um, you know, I, I just, um, the reality is I was a, I was a good player, but my feet were slow. Um, my legs were, were, were a little heavy and I just, um, you know, never, never really got a whole lot of opportunity to to play. And this was at a time back then in basketball, uh, you could have, um, you know, like, 15 scholarships and you could divide them and 
you can't do that anymore. It's 13 full rides in Division One, and that's it, men, men's basketball. Um, so, you know, I was I was I went to Women Mary on a on a small partial scholarship, sort of a recruited semi walk on. And uh, but I'm very proud that uh, I was able to get more and more money each year because my coach recognized that I was a good teammate and I did not play much. Um, we were not that successful. Women Mary is a wonderful place, but it is one of the now only four of the original uh, Division One college basketball programs to never make the big dance, the NCAA tournament. Um, I really hope that we can break that skid sometime soon. But, you know, there's, it's a tough gig. It's a tough place to play. And when I played, we, had, we were in the Colonial Athletic Association with George Mason, VCU, Old Dominion, UNC, you know, those three schools are now on the Atlantic 10 and, and, and different types of schools, different types of schools, great places, but different schools. And the Naval Academy was also in the CA at that time. And they had a guy that you may have heard of by the name of David Robinson. He's exact same age as me. We're the same four years together. And he kicked our ass. He wasn't six foot. Well, he started at six foot, whatever, but he didn't. Yeah, end I, I six tell foot, people whatever. this all the time. My, my son doesn't believe it. I'm like, believe it or not, I was a higher level recruit than David <laughs> freaking Robinson. And he's like, well, are you crazy? You didn't yeah, he, your I, growth think he was, I think he was six, six. Yeah. And he ended up at the Naval Academy because he was really good at math. And his dad had been in the Navy and that was really his only option. And, um, you know, I had, I had a handful of, of options and, um, Anyway, he was 6'6", he goes to be 7'1", 280, monster player of the year. And, you know, he had one game against us where he had 11 blocks and 11 dunks. We were, my, my, my buddies and I were watching an end of C, you know, one of those old end of CBS wrap-up, college basketball wrap-up shows with Brent Musburger or something. And it was showing, it was 1987 and showing all these David Robinson highlights. And it seemed like half of them were against William and Mary. Um, but, you know, and we also played, Basically, as an auxiliary member of the ACC, played Maryland, played UVA, played Wake Forest um, every year. And, you know, Maryland, I, I got to play against Lynn Bias, you know, who people that don't know, um, you know, arguably certainly the greatest ba uh, basketball player that I ever played against live. And, you know, I think could have been potentially, you know, on par with, with Michael Jordan. I mean, you know, it's amazing. We're talking about things that cause you to change your direction. And I, I was just telling a young man, this story that I grew up in Maryland, 25, 20 minutes from, from college park, yeah. Maryland. And you always heard this story of Len bias and the story, whether it was true or not, who knows, but the story was, Oh, he did cocaine once and he died. Yep. That was what, that was what I was told. Yep. And so for me, I was like, I'm never doing cocaine. It was, it was a very, uh, simple and clean it's like this leads to this and um so it's just interesting how things impact you and, and once again the power that sports can have on other people you know if i i don't know if i had heard like a politician or a rock star or somebody else had done that and died i don't know if it would have had the same impact mm -hmm. but i loved basketball yep. and like you know i wasn't blessed with your size mm -hmm. um and you know so it was just very clear clear and clean for me and i just i just stuck to that yep. um so but I want to go back to you at uh, William & Mary. You mentioned theater. 
when did theater become a thing that you were interested in? Well, my, my, I, I came, we would make the drive from uh, the Eastern Panhandle of West Virginia to the Kennedy Center. That was a big deal for our family, but I did it often. And so I was uh, exposed to the Kennedy Center at an early age. It was a big treat for, you know, for the whole family. And uh, also, though, Episcopal High School is the second biggest purchaser of tickets at the Kennedy Center after the U.S. Naval Academy. So I could go see a play at the Kennedy Center virtually every weekend when I was at Episcopal. Now, I didn't, um, but I saw a lot um, while I was at Episcopal. And so, you know, but I also would go to the old Opera House, which is the theater in Charlestown, West Virginia. And I love it. You know, this summer I got to see Hamilton twice on Broadway with my daughter and then in Chicago with my uh, with my terrific girlfriend. And what an all have you seen it? Yes. What an audaciously awesome, crazy. And as a history guy, I love the story. But like they turn this story into this. I mean, it's so cool. So um, I, I like excellence and hard work. Um, I recognize that and appreciate it no matter the forum. And but were you in theater in high school as well? A little well? bit, a little bit. Uh, you know, my uh, my claim to fame is a production of Huckleberry Finn, and I played Huck, and I was damn good. Um, but but I was not, you know, I was an athlete, and I, you know, through high school, I played football, basketball, and tennis, varsity level. And so I didn't have a whole lot of time to do maybe a whole full-blown theater production except for the Huck Finn one. And, you know, but I've been a, a patron, I would say, much more and have an appreciation for, for theater. And I like to think that uh, I'm more than a, a dumb jock and uh, a renaissance man in, in that regard. I'll tell you a funny story. When I first started doing this work about 10 years ago, I was working on the high school basketball team in San Francisco, and they had a little point guard. He was about five foot five, uh, and his name was Max. Hey, Max. Uh, and Max was the star of the theater program at the school. And he was also the starting point guard. And he was this little kid, he was a little kid. He was short, feisty, like tough, would defend, you yeah, know, yeah. that little five, five point yeah. guard, five, six, maybe. And I remember I met with Max once and I said, Max, what do you do before you go on stage? Like walk me through your pre stage routine. He said, well, you know, we do some stretching, we do some breath work. Uh, we do some meditation you know, then we put our makeup on, we get into costume, then we all come together and, you know, we, we get ready to perform. And I go, okay, well, what do you do before a basketball game or a basketball practice? And he's like, I don't know. Oh, was that right? He hadn't connected that, like, the way he got ready to go on stage could be leveraged for himself as a basketball player. And so <laughs> the next practice, I walk into the gym and he's sitting on the bleachers, like doing meditation and he's getting himself ready to, to practice. And I love, I love bringing in other elements of performance into sports because I think there's such a correlation there and there's similarities that exist for an actor or a musician. And you see that all the time, how, how, you know, prominent, you know, folks that we see on TV, actors and athletes connect and they have such an admiration for each other. And I would think that there is a lot of carryover in preparation and the exhilaration that they feel, the pressure that they feel. Um, yeah, I mean, I during my college career, I got to play a couple of, I played in Cameron Indoor Stadium twice and, you know, played in a couple of big arenas with 20,000 people. And, um, you know, but also 
remember playing in pack gyms in high school when the conference championship on the line and it's got to be similar to you know performing in a in a play on Broadway or anywhere in the Kennedy Center you name it so for sure um, I, you know just as I finished up my career at William and Mary, it it's ironically because I because I didn't play much, it's where I found my voice as a leader. I, I really found myself watching the game a little bit differently, watching the game as a coach. My my roommate um, was the starting point guard and a couple you know the starting power fours. You know, one of my best friends to this day, and we lived together you know in Sweden. And, I found myself talking to those guys. Hey, this is what I'm seeing. Let's try this and this. And, and uh, I, you know, as I graduated, you know, I, I had a history degree with an English and theater minor. And, you know, okay, now what am I going to do? Uh, my parents asked me the same thing. I just kept coming back to what is my passion. And it was, it was basketball and coaching. And I just want to give this thing a try. So, you know, I went right back to school and I got a master's degree and I got certified to teach. And I spent four wonderful years as a high school teacher and basketball coach, and uh, and, and and learned a lot. I, I I coached at Gloucester High School, which is right across the York River from Newport News, Virginia, and I coached in at that time. I was the youngest AAA head coach, and that was the biggest level in Virginia at the time in the entire state. And we were in a district with the, called the Peninsula District, which was the best basketball in the state of Virginia. I coached against Allen Iverson, uh, and his backcourt mate was Tony Rutland, who went on to start for four years at Wake Forest. I mean, and then, you know, Kickatan High School had five Division I football and basketball players. Hampton High School was winning the state title every year, multiple Division I guys. And I had a bunch of farm boys, basically from Gloucester, Virginia, coming across the, the river, and we took our lumps but I learned a lot and I developed mentors and friends uh, that, you know, are still with me to this day. And, and again, uh, for what it's worth, the Peninsula District overwhelmingly, Newport News and Hampton, overwhelmingly African-American and, you know, gave me and my players. And I had a few African-American young men, great, great guys. um, But, you know, I had some farm boys too. And, you know, gave gave them an opportunity to be exposed to some some really good lessons that were that were beneficial and transformational. So, so yeah. fill in the gaps on your career and, and what came next after coaching in high school. Yeah, I've I've uh, always been I think a bit ambitious, and I don't apologize for that. I, I think uh, you know as long as you have integrity, ambition is fine. And I wanted to coach in college. I wanted to try myself at a higher level. And so I took a big, you know, at that time, big pay cut as a public school, single public school teacher to become a graduate assistant at East Stroudsburg University up in Pennsylvania, and um, which I didn't know anything about. But one of my assistant coaches from William and Mary was now the head coach at East Stroudsburg University. And so I took a leap of faith and went up and, uh, Spent a wonderful year as a grad assistant there and, you know, lived on basically a porch uh, about the size that my whole place was about the size of this of this office. And um, from there, got an opportunity to go be an assistant coach at Roanoke College, which is a great Division three program in Virginia, where one of my players from Gloucester had gone and worked for Paige Moyer, uh, whose father, Charlie Moyer, was a longtime head coach at Virginia Tech. And. 
we I spent one year there. We were 26 and two, ranked in the top 10 in the country all year long, and got upset in the second round of the NCAA tournament. But it was an awesome experience, and and ironically, that's where my daughter is in school now, and it's an incredible place. They just built a 50 million dollar athletic complex, arena fitness center, locker rooms, and spills right into the beautiful place, the stadium where they play soccer. I'm like, sweetheart, you have no idea how lucky you are. Um, and from there, I got to go to James Madison University where I worked for Coach Lefty Drizel, Charles Lefty Drizel. And, you know, Coach Drizel, gr- growing up, again, not far from the University of Maryland, was an idol of mine. And I watched epic battles, um, you know, in the ACC and, um, you know, had played against his teams when I was at William & Mary. And so to get a chance to learn from him and coach under him um, was really, really incredible. He was the first basketball coach or first athletic person, really, that made me think about the, the, the totality of the sport experience. He didn't just focus on X's and O's. He did. A lot of people will like to say that he didn't do it enough or whatever. Old lefty. Well, he, I tell you, he's crazy like a fox. He knew exactly what he was doing. But he, you know, he had a focus on, on recruiting, obviously, but marketing, ticket sales, how we would travel, you know, game times, the music that the band was supposed to play while, you know, the team was warming up. When he, when he would make his entrance, and it was an entrance, into the arena. Um, uh, we played, he got Purdue and Minnesota Big Ten teams to come to James Madison, and that really wasn't happening that much anymore. And a lot of that was, I'm sure, power of his influence. But we played, I remember, um, George Washington University on President's Day on ESPN, um, you know, but we had to play at like 11 o'clock in the morning. But we did it to be on ESPN. We played the University of Richmond at midnight, midnight tip, live on ESPN, and the place was literally electric. Back then, they called uh, they called JMU's arena, the Convocation Center, the Electric Zoo, um, and it was it was really really wild and fun. He worked me really hard. It was nothing for him to call me up at five in the morning and say, Ken. Let's go. Pick me up in half an hour. We're going to Richmond. Okay, coach, I'll be there. And, you know, you never really knew. And I was uh, a newlywed. Never really knew what to expect or what was going to come. But that was uh, – it was exhilarating. I didn't have any kids at that time. And my wife was uh, understanding. Um, so it was, it was really, really terrific. And um, I remember just real quickly, really poignant, he had a notebook – on every player that had ever played for him, an old school notebook with sort of all the correspondence related to that player. And I, you know, late one night, you know, I was in there by myself and I found the Lynn Bias notebook. And in there were two things that really hit my heart. One was the old, um, you, you know, you missed a call thing from his secretary. You know, remember those little notes? And it said, trouble in the dorm mm-hmm. on whatever night that it was, June, whatever it was. And the other was his uh, speech that he gave at the eulogy in Cole Fieldhouse for, for Lynn with his handwritten notes, you know, edits and stuff in it. And, um, you know, pretty, pretty wild stuff. 
In addition, he had a notebook for Moses Malone, hmm. who he never got to play for him, but he signed. He would tell everybody, I signed Moses Malone, the greatest player in the country. He went straight to the NBA. he went straight to the ABA. <laughs> um, so where'd you go after James Madison? I took my head, first head coaching job at Albright College, which is a great private liberal arts school in Reading, Pennsylvania. That was a little bit down at the time. I was 29 years old. I didn't know which way was up. Uh, but we worked our tails off and uh, built the program into one of the best in the Mid-Atlantic region. Transitioning from an assistant to a head coach, what was that like for you? Uh, it's, makes, it's a huge difference. Um, you know, it's... Uh, one foot or so along on the bench, but it's uh, it's a long longer distance than that. In reality, you go from making suggestions to making decisions, and um, but I felt like I was prepared. I'd only been a college assistant for three years, but I had been a high school head coach, so I was a little bit different than than maybe some. I had been a head coach at at some level. I designed a practice plan. I had hired assistant coaches, made a schedule, um, you know. The, the big thing was, you know, understand the responsibility that's involved with being the head coach, taking um, ownership and initiative and recruiting and academics, and most of all, their personal development. You know, I've, I would go into homes, and it's funny, as I drove into Bethesda today, one of the first kids that I signed was a kid from Walter Johnson High School here in Bethesda. Great young man by the name of Summer Hemphill. Summer Sunshine Hemphill. Believe it or not, Summer could play. And um, funny name, but he could play. And, you know, but I would tell the, the parents that I would take care of their kid. And, uh, you know, I wanted to deliver on that promise. Um, and just the whole aspect of dealing with other areas of campus, dealing with the AD, dealing with the academic side, the admissions side, all of that. But I, I, um, I very quickly felt comfortable doing all of that. And uh, we built a really, really strong program. I recruited uh, another young man named James Drury from Silver Spring, Maryland, uh, who ended up being a top 20 all-time scorer at Albright. And then I recruited a kid named Sean Swavely from Reading, Pennsylvania, who was a first-team All-American. He's the number two all-time scorer there. And then we had a front line, and this is D3 now, 6'8", 6'8", 6'10". It was legit. And I thought my next to the last year there, we had a team that was capable of going to the Division Three Final Four. And for people that don't know, Division Three is the largest of the three divisions. hundred more schools play Division Three hoops than, than do Division One, So it's no easy feat. And we had an amazing year. We won uh, 22, 23 games. But uh, we, we came up short and uh, lost in the semifinals of the conference tournament and did not get an at-large bid because – the field is smaller in Division Three at that time. Now it's larger, and uh, that's a, a great disappointment that I have. But uh, several of those players, many of those players, still keep in touch with me through social media and other ways, and really, really proud of my time there. But I also became an assistant athletic director. Not uncommon um, at the small college level for coaches to sometimes hold administrative duties and. I found that I really liked that. I, I looked for more and more responsibility, whether it was personnel or fundraising. What did you what did you like about it? I wanted more responsibility. I wanted more opportunity. I wanted to grow. Uh, I wanted to move forward. Quite frankly, I wanted to be paid more. Um, you know, I had a young family by then. And at the small college level, athletic director, uh, administration, 
are the decision makers, you know, at the at the Division One levels, particularly the high Division One level, the basketball coach is a much more prominent and powerful figure, often than the AD and the football coach. That's not the case at the D two and D three level. Um, so, you know, I wanted to have a, a seat at the table. Um, wanted maybe to have a little bit broader impact. So, from Albright, I went to Shepherd University, which is a great Division two school in my hometown area of Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And we spent seven amazing years there, took over. It was very down. We made it relevant again, um, you know, did a lot of good things. Both places, we renovated the arena. So that's a lasting legacy that we have. Shepherd, I had to raise scholarship money every year because I didn't get enough. And so to be competitive with some of the best teams in our league, I had to raise money. Had, so I really had to scramble and become a fundraiser and, I became pretty good at it, um, you know, both from individuals and from corporate uh, opportunities. Um, and, again, took on more and more responsibility as an assistant athletic director till uh, at the end of my seventh year, I realized I'm basically acting as a de facto AD. And I have a decision I have to make. And ultimately, I decided to go for an athletic director opportunity, and I was able to obtain one at West Virginia Wesleyan College, which is the best overall athletic program in the league that we were in. And so it was a really good chance, a really good place for me, a good spot for me, and report directly to the president and, and really have a seat at the table campus-wide. And, and were you stopping being a basketball player at that point? A coach, yeah. Yeah, sorry, basketball yeah, coach. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I did. I had to, and it was really hard because I felt like I had a lot still to give as a coach. And I was relatively young. I think I was 42 years old, and – our team was going to be really good coming back. We had a couple of talented Division One transfers, and it was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. Um, I'm very fortunate that they gave the job to my assistant coach, Justin Namlick, who's still at Shepherd doing a great job. And so I felt good about that. And I also learned very quickly that kids are resilient. Young people are resilient. I'm like, oh, my God, how will they ever survive without me? And I've learned now that they do just fine. Um, certainly you hope that you leave a positive Im uh, imprint and a legacy of some sort that's positive, but uh, they're going to be okay. Um, and they were. And, uh, you know, I, people ask me all the time, still to this day, do you miss coaching? And the answer is, heck, yeah. What do you miss? I miss the, I miss the bonding with, with my players. I miss the, the fight together in that locker room, on the sideline, the thrill of winning a big game, winning a championship, the tears that come after a loss. I miss that too. Um, what don't you miss? <sighs> recruiting, you know, long bus rides. You know, we didn't get to fly charter. Um, I spent a lot of time on buses all over the great state of Pennsylvania and West Virginia and up and down the, you know, mid-Atlantic region and, um, you know, scrambling to, to raise money to, to do what I felt was necessary to have a competitive program because we were a bit underfunded. Um, you know, I don't, I don't miss that. Um, I don't miss having, you know, everybody thinks that they can coach. Everybody's got the answer. You should be playing this guy. You should be playing uh, this defense. Um, believe it or not, in college athletics, you still have to deal with parents who have some unrealistic expectations. Um, and I do that. I had to do that as an athletic director as well. People think, oh, well, you don't have to mess with parents in college. Oh, yeah, you do. You still do. So when you make this transition to becoming an athletic director, what did you enjoy about that job? What was 
what was the pull and and what did you what did you enjoy about it? I've always tried to approach my athletic director job, and I was an AD, college AD for ten years, as a as a coach of coaches, and as a leader of a team of teams. And ultimately, the job I think of a good athletic director is to get the entire department to share a mission, share values, share a common vision while still feeling individually empowered. And that's really hard because coaches and student athletes, the good ones are driven. They have blinders on and they see the world primarily through their sport, their world. And, you know, your job as an AD is to get them to open those blinders up a little bit and to recognize that they're part of a larger department. And, oh, by the way, this department is part of a larger university and, you know, sometimes the decisions that are made, I had to do that with, with that in mind. Um, I love building teams. I love hiring people. Um, I'm so proud of the many dozens and dozens of people that I hired as a college athletic director, coaches and other staff. And, uh, you know, at the, the other side of that coin is that, uh, you know, I've had a handful of times where I've had to make a very difficult decision and let someone go and a good leader I think should never like doing that but also should never be afraid when they have to do that and I've taken that approach um, and I've always tried to be uh, make sure that it's not a surprise to the individual that there was a process that was in place and um, you know it's really as an athletic director that I've seen the true power of sport um I found my, my really my voice. Uh, I, I do a lot of public speaking, um, you know, touting the virtues of our department or our student athletes, our coaches, but also on leadership and motivation, the opportunity that sports presents. And uh, I've really enjoyed that. Um, but I've always tried to circle back to I'm serving coaches. I'm serving student athletes. I have to listen. I have to hear their stories. I have to make sure that the field hockey program feels just as valued as the basketball program. And that's difficult, right? Because the basketball program, I was an AD at the University of Mary Washington, which is a high-level D3 program, a great school in Fredericksburg, Virginia, a mid-sized university in the, com- in the public school in the Commonwealth of Virginia. We didn't have football but we have a beautiful basketball arena and a high-level program in men's and women's basketball. So marketing opportunities, corporate sponsor opportunities, we're going to fundraising opportunities are going to be a lot around basketball. And you know, our basketball coaches were asked to do some things beyond just coaching the team. And so you know, you've got to you've got to walk that line with your other sports. You know, why are we pouring more dollars into this sport? Why are this why is this coach getting paid X amount when I'm only getting paid this amount? And um, you know, you 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 do that by building trust over time, by being transparent, by listening to understand, by implementing ideas that come from staff. You can't just listen and give lip service and never ever put any of their ideas into play or never deliver. Um, you know, I tried to find a way, how can we get to yes? What's the compromise as a leader? I've learned, uh, you know, the word compromise is part of 
your everyday life. And every now and then you got to hold your nose and do some things that you don't want to do. Um, I want to, I want to do a little exercise with you. So I want to go back to the basketball player version of you. What's the one word that you would say captures why you were successful? Even go to high school. Like what's the, if you were to pick one word that you felt like unlocked your potential in high school, what would the word be? Uh, relentless. And then I, I and, never stepped on the court and gave anything less than my best. And then as a coach, what would be the one word that you think allowed you to be a great coach? It's funny. I, I'll answer your question. I teach a class now, sports management class at George Mason University. And uh, we just had a symposium the other night on sports psychology and a couple of students went to it and we were talking about the beginning of class today and how coaching has evolved. And I told them when I first started coaching, it was a very different time. I became a high school head coach in 1990. And words like empathy and emotional intelligence were not part of the coaching lexicon back then. Now they are. Now they're a requirement. You know, when I'm hiring coaches, I'm trying to get a gauge for their empathy, their emotional intelligence. I was a hard ass because that's how I had been coached. And I regret some of that. I hope they knew I cared about them. I always tried to get to know them and care about them, but I was a hard ass. Um, so, you know, my word would be driven. So if you were to shift it to if tomorrow you became a head basketball coach, what would be the word that you would want to capture how you yeah, show I mean, up? I think I'd borrow from John Gordon, you know, and he, he talks about it's not tough love anymore. It's love tough. You know, you got to make sure they you love them first. And, I, you know, I mean that in the appropriate way. Um, and, you know, then then you are able to mold them. Then you're able to get them to buy into your culture. Then you're able to get them to run the offense you want them to run. And because they will understand that it's that you care about them and it's for the good of the team. And then if you were to shift to athletic director, what would be the word that captures what a great athletic director is? Yeah. I mean, a, a, a great athletic director wears so many different hats. I mean, I think the word is probably versatile or adapt. Um, so many different things come your way on a given day, um, internally and externally you've got to be versatile and you've got to be able to adapt. And would that be the same word you'd use for your experience at the St. James? Yeah. I mean, I, I would talk, and I don't know if I said this to you, but uh, I've described my, my experience at the St. James in many ways as assembling an airplane as it's been running, uh, rolling down the runway, getting ready to take off. And it's been exciting and exhilarating, but also challenging and, and a little bit scary at times. Um, and yeah, you know, there's so many different things coming in so many different directions while at the St. James, we're trying to build this huge corporate entity that eventually is going to have, you know, I don't know, 10,000 employees. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a daunting task. something that I, you know, I, I was up for, I'm up for, but, um, you know, if you aren't able to embrace change, in that kind of an environment, you're not going to last long. And then as you think about all of your experience, what habits or systems or actions have you taken consistently, habits, routines that have allowed you to be your best self? Yeah, I, uh, I appreciate that question. I, I will tell you this. I start 
most of my days with an early workout in our facility. And I did this as a college athletic director and often as a college coach. That gives me a chance, particularly when I was a college athletic director, to, you know, make sure our facilities were in good shape, make sure all our equipment was as it should be. As I walked through and to the, the, uh, the, the, the actual the weight room or the fitness center, I, you know, is our, our security systems in place? Is the custodial staff done their job? Then I often worked out right alongside a team or two, and they got to see me suffering right along with them. And that humanized me a little bit. It showed some vulnerability. They, sh- they saw the coach or the athletic director struggle a little bit, and that's okay. And that's something else that I've learned over time. It's okay to show some vulnerability, and it's actually a sign of strength to ask for help. 20 years ago, I would have never done that. And that wasn't part of the, of the, the mindset either when you were coaching. If you asked for help, you were weak. Now, it's a, you know, it's a sign of strength, and I encourage student-athletes all the time to do that. So an early morning workout, and then that allowed me also to have informal meetings with staff and to check in with staff in ways that uh, I think were more productive and more comfortable often than formal meetings. And I would make a point, hopefully every day, to get out of my office and walk around, leadership by walking around. The best part of my day was when I would go watch practice. I would try to make sure that I would keep that block of time open at least three or four times a week. I just go out and watch practice to see how our coaches are interacting, to make sure the student athletes were having a good experience. But I also just love it. You know, I geek out on it. And uh, whether it was a field hockey or lacrosse, a basketball, football practice, I wanted to get out there and see people getting after it. I wanted to hear the game plan for how we were going to win the next game because I want to win. I'm competitive. And, um, you know, we want to win the, the, the championships. And so um, – that's been that's been an intentional habit of mine. I've also always been a big reader um, um, of all kinds of books. Uh, I certainly have a lot of sports-related books, but I also have read a lot of history, a lot of biography, a lot of current events. Uh, and lately, um, you know, my focus has been on leadership and mental performance. Um, I just finished our friend Alan Stein's book, Raise Your Game, and I've got to know Alan a bit um, through the work at the St. James, and he's terrific and a former hoops and a former hoops guy. Um, and I'm a big fan of John Gordon, um, and I follow a bunch of uh, folks on on social media, including you, Brian, uh, where I learn a lot all the time. And so um, I consider myself a lifelong learner, and maybe more intentional about that than I was, say, ten or fifteen years ago. Um, and, I, you know, just discipline, too. I think um, I make my bed every morning. You know, you, if, I don't know if you ever saw the speech that uh, Stanley McChrystal gave, General McChrystal, and, you know, the s- lessons that he learned as a Navy SEAL. And it starts with simply making your bed and doing that accomplishment. I make sure I make my bed every morning and have a little bit of discipline uh, to your life and uh, think about um, being healthy of mind, body, and spirit so that I can be the best for the people that I serve, starting with my family and then with my my colleagues and then my customers or whatever case may be. The one, last question is spirit. And I had it in my mind earlier and then it went away, which is you talked about going to Episcopal. You talked about, um, you know, Christmas, 
Uh, how much does faith play a role in your life? How, how much has it impacted you? I would love to just hear what your spiritual framework is. Diving right in, aren't you? Uh, yes, yeah, so like, and it doesn't have to be that. I just think if we're going to talk about mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual as being strength, I think we each have whatever that spiritual framework is. It could be atheist. It doesn't really matter to me what it is, but, um, you know, I think it's, you know, we talk, I think what I love about the podcast is we hopefully can talk about things that other people say, Oh, don't talk about it. I'm like, yeah. no, let's talk about yeah. it. Like politics. Okay. Like let's have a conversation and, uh, faith, let's have a conversation, whatever. Uh, because I think we have to continue to have dialogue on uncomfortable subjects or, or even private subjects. And there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't feel comfortable talking about it. Cool. We don't <laughs> talk about it. Um, but I think, uh, what I try to do with this podcast and hopefully the listeners appreciate it is just find out who people are and what shaped them. And, and so faith for some people is, and for others, it's, it has nothing to do with what shaped them. It, it, it's had a lot to do with what shaped me. Uh, I appreciate the question very much. Um, I, you know, I was raised in the Episcopal church and, um, have a lot of, uh, really strong memories about those experiences and Sunday school and some of the lessons that I learned and, um, you know, uh, different uh, passages and, and verses in the Bible that have been meaningful to me. Um, Episcopal, at, when I went to Episcopal High School, um, we had to go to chapel virtually every day. Um, and as you might imagine, as a, as a 15 to 18 year old young man, just a simple act that we had to do that every day. We, we might have shut down a bit. It wasn't long. I, th I seem to remember it was only like 20 or 25 minutes of announcements and then a little bit of brief chapel service. But uh, I probably didn't get as much out of it as I should have. But it washes over you. It becomes a little bit part of you, who you are. And um, through the course of my life, I you know, as uh, I've journeyed, I've been on my journey in athletics, I've moved a fair amount of times. And so, you know, I haven't been grounded in one specific church or even one specific denomination. I've always tried to find a place where me and my family could feel comfortable, seem like good people. Uh, logistically, it made sense. And so I've, I've gotten to be exposed to lots of different places and people through spirituality and through my faith. Um, finally, I will just say that... Um, you know, I, I spent six wonderful years at the University of Mary Washington, and the president changed. Um, I was on the search committee that hired him, but he turned over virtually all of senior leadership, including the athletic director. You know, and you know, my last year at Mary Washington was a great year, but I felt like I was swimming upstream, and inevitably we came to a point where there was going to be a transition. Shortly after that, uh, my marriage came to an end. Shortly after that, my father passed away and my mom had passed in 2014 um and I've got these two amazing kids that I'm you know trying to stay you know anchored keep anchored so I don't want to sound like I've you know used my faith as a crutch or anything like that but all of those things really at once and the job the marriage and my dad all happened in the month of March 2018, um, it causes you to reflect in a way that's pretty strong and powerful and meaningful. And you ask some hard questions. You look in the mirror a lot. 
Um, but at the end of the day, I, I believe that, um, you know, there is a higher purpose. Um, I have, you know, I've always preached to anyone that I have I had an opportunity to work with that life is much more about how we deal with what happens to us than what happens to us. And I've, I've tried to keep that mindset and I've, I've used faith as sort of a propellant and an optimist fuel for me. And, uh, you know, I'm always, uh, optimistic and always excited for the next chapter and, and whether that's professionally or personally or anything in between. So, um, I would say that um, I'm not going to you know, be overt with my faith, but it's been a constant in my life, and it's a source of uh, fulfillment and fullness and strength um, that I'm very glad that I have. It's a beautiful place for us to stop. Yeah. Um, we met on social media at first, on, on Twitter, and uh, so I think it's a great opportunity for you to let people know where they can find you on social media or anything that you're passionate about. Uh, just give a megaphone to where people can learn more about what you're up to. Yeah, I appreciate that. Again, I would encourage everyone to check out the St. James. Uh, even, even if you don't get there, you'll like work looking at the pictures and reading about it a little bit. Um, uh, the, the St. James.com. Um, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at St. James underscore AD. Um, Ken Tyler, and I hope uh, folks will check out uh, what I'm what I'm doing there um, and connect with me. And uh, certainly, um, anybody wants to shoot me an email, they can at Ken Tyler at the St James dot com, um, where they can get a hold of me through you, Brian. You've got all my contact information. Uh, but I want to thank you for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, thanks for allowing me uh, a forum to speak so freely and openly. I haven't I haven't done that in a long time, and it feels really good. And uh, I'm not sure uh, that I deserve it, but I'm appreciative of the opportunity. And thanks very much. So I think we all deserve it. I think everybody's got a story to tell, yeah. and uh, it's one of the things that I've loved about doing this podcast is just getting to hear people's perspective and their story and how they think about things. And I really believe like we all have that. Uh, we all do. And too often we don't take time to get to know someone else's story. So um, perhaps if you're listening to this, go spend some time with somebody that you either know or you care about, or you want to learn a little bit more about them and put them on the hot seat. Like I put Ken on the hot yeah. seat and, and just ask some questions, just stay curious and, People often ask me how I go about doing this. I told Ken before we started, I said, do I have a couple questions that I'm thinking about before we chat? Yes. But most of the time, I'm just trying to listen and stay curious and, and ask uh, questions that I don't know the answer to. And I think if we all stay curious and we all ask those questions, we learn, we grow, and we can connect with people as well. So uh, I want to thank you for coming on. I am on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And you can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Thanks again, Brian. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Then I often worked out right alongside a team or two, and they got to see me suffering right along with them. And that humanized me a little bit. It showed some vulnerability. They, sh they saw the coach or the athletic director struggle a little bit, and that's okay. And that's something else that I've learned over time. It's okay 
to show some vulnerability, and it's actually a sign of strength to ask for help.